welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down the movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Goose and Maverick. Let's kick the tires and light the fires. Welcome to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by the L.A. Stallions. Go see NFL star Billy Cole blow away the competition this Monday night when the L.A. Stallions take on Chicago. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I'm Wes. And I'm Todd. And I'm Joe. And this is the show where we like to tear apart a movie, I guess, try to see what it's made of. And even better if we can like walk away with some little insights, not only in the uh, filmmaking perspective, but also kind of storytelling mechanisms and just anything nerdy. Um, like if we were going to do a movie that was adapted from a novel, that would be really fun to say, here's why adapting novels should never be done or can be well done or or other things and and yeah yeah and i guess you know what one of the favorite things that i think makes our show a little bit more interesting if i can like brag on us for a second is that we really do if we say we're going to cover lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring we're going to spend all of our time actually talking about the topic Instead of saying, I don't know, 30 minutes about how my workout went earlier today, which, by the way, it went well. So thank you for asking. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. I was concerned. <laughs> good yeah. to know, though. Yeah. I, so at the interest of being a little navel-gazing, uh, I want to ask both of you, before we roll into the heavy stuff, what do you like about our show, Todd? <laughs> Oh my God. (laughs) Um, I like, I I like that. It's a challenge for me every week, you know, to, to actually really kind of like dig down into why I liked or disliked something, you know, like pick some, pick this thing apart that we're working on, you know, if it's, you know, a film or a TV show or whatever, um, into it's, it's like smaller parts and really ask myself, about the journey that this took me on, if I enjoyed it, if I didn't, like it's, it's kind of every week is an internal uh, discovery of, you know, my own taste. And, and is that developing? Is that, you know, uh, am, am I able to tap into that this week? You know, it, it really is kind of like a litmus test of, of how present am I honestly? Cause some weeks, some weeks are better than others, you know, on the show for me. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with just life in general. And sometimes I, you have work every day, you have responsibilities and stuff. And, and sometimes you kind of, when you're deep in that, it's hard to bring yourself back out and to have self-discovery. And so this forces me to do that. And, and, you know, whether it's good or bad, at least it tells me, oh, you know, I need to get back on track and, and, and be present because obviously, you know, I, I wasn't enough in that episode or, or whatever. Or, you know, if it's a really good one that I felt like, man, I, that was so much fun. The more fun the pestle is for me, the more present I am. So, yeah. Nice. <laughs> what about you, Joe? I'm sure you don't have an opinion. I don't have any opinion at all. It's funny. Like I, I've taken a lot of filmmaking kind of courses. I've taken a lighting course. I've studied, uh, you know, stuff in school. And I always thought when you're on set and you see a cinematographer working with a director and making specific choices about how we're going to light this, where we put the camera, it was always like, if you really want to dive into that relationship and those kinds of choices, you got to be a cinematographer. And uh, this podcast taught me that you just have to watch the work 
and be willing to uh, kind of step back from it and look at what they're trying, what the filmmakers are trying to tell you. Uh, you've kind of given, especially you, Wes, with your uh, attention to the specificity of filmmaking choices. I'm like, they're, they're all kind of laid bare in the world of the film that you sit down and watch that you don't have to go behind the scenes to really learn deep lessons about how filmmakers are approaching their craft and what specific things they're doing to have an emotional effect on you. Watch the work and, you know, first let it wash over you and then, you know, try to pay attention. And uh, it, it was funny. We were talking yesterday when we were watching Fellowship of the Ring. I've seen this movie like a million times. And yesterday was the first time I kind of detached myself from the story in the world and looked at what Andrew Lesney, the DP, was doing, what uh, Boyens, Walsh, and Jackson were thinking when they were adapting the book. And it was really cool. I picked up a whole bunch of subtle details that absolutely had an emotional effect on me, but that I've never really considered before. Uh, so that's what the pestle gives to me. Uh, so cool because yeah. for one it's taught me at least as much as anything and i love what you said todd because we passively watch movies all the time like i might be on the couch and uh just have something on in the background that i'm supposed to be watching and then i may actually just be on my phone just kind of you know twiddling about texting back and forth here and there but whenever we're covering a movie for the show i have to dial in on a whole other level like i really have to focus a hundred percent on what I'm watching or else I feel like I'm going to let, you know, myself down because this is supposed to be a study period for me. And then it might not be as good of an episode if, if that happens. And those are probably the episodes where I end up watching the movie like three or four times. Cause like, Hey Wes, <laughs> wake the hell up, bro. <laughs> but I love that. It does make me grow in a way that I probably detach myself on a day to day basis. Yeah. That's really damn cool. With that said, what are we doing today? Oh man, we are we are covering Lord of the Rings: Fellowship of the Ring, uh, and I'm so excited that we have Joe here for this because, uh, I mean, for obvious reasons, working at Weta, and uh, I just and you know I know he's a huge fan. I mean, I'm a big fan too, but you know, th th there's <laughs> with a with a film with films like this, there's level of fandom, and so <laughs> I, I know that that his level is is multitudes higher than mine so I'm, I'm really excited to hear what he has to say <laughs> that's awesome if you haven't seen the movies like we're definitely going to stay mostly on the fellowship but there's a good chance we're just going to talk about all three in some form or factor because to talk about one can often lead to things that happen later on and so it's it's safer you know as a spoiler warning be sure you've read the books or watched the movies unless you want this spoiled. Um, Definitely. Yeah. It, it's, we're going to spoil all of them. <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, it has to, right? I mean, yeah. you can't talk about the first third of this story only. It's not, I don't, uh, yeah. I'm not that good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I may also uh, dive a little bit into uh, the Silmarillion unfinished tales and stuff. You know, no huge spoilers, but uh, just be warned. Damn right you are. I'm going there. We're going to cover a lot of Good. things. We're going to talk about the cinematography, adapting a novel, my personal favorite edit in the movie. Um, and of course, as by now you're well aware, we are joined by the illustrious Joe Howes. He's an actor, an aerial drone filmmaker, a visual effects artist. He's a programmer for Weta Digital, which if you're not aware, Weta Digital and Weta Workshop are responsible for a great 
deal of all the effects, both special effects, practical effects, visual effects. Most of that was done through Weto, who uh, Joe now works for. And, of course, he's also our resident Lord of the Rings expert encyclopedia <laughs> <laughs> and other such things and stuff. And things. And things. And things. So if you haven't seen the film, we'll give you a quick synopsis. A meek hobbit from the Shire and eight companions set out on a journey to destroy the powerful One Ring and save Middle-earth from the Dark Lord Sauron. It's directed by Peter Jackson, screenplay by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson. It's based on the novel by J.R.R. Tolkien, and it's starring Elijah Wood as Frodo Baggins, Ian McKellen, McKellen as Gandalf, Christopher Lee as Saruman, Saruman, sorry, I can't talk, Ian Holm as Bilbo, Kate Blanchett as Galadriel, uh, Sean Astin as Sam, Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn, uh, John Rius Davies as Gimli, Orlando Bloom as Legolas, Hugo Weaving as Elrond, and Liv Tyler as Arwen. There's something down there. It's Gollum. Gollum. He's been following us for three days. He escaped the dungeons of Barad-dûr. Escaped. Or was set loose. But now the ring has drawn him here. He will never be rid of his need for it. He hates and loves the ring. As he hates and loves himself. Smeagol's life is a sad story. Yes, Smeagol, he was once called. Before the ring found him. Before it drove him mad. It's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that lived deserved death. And some that died deserved life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise can assume ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play yet. For good or ill. Before this is over, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of me. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. Decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Man, so many things, but first, I really want to hear Todd, like, for one, do you have any kind of relationship with Lord of the Rings or is it something that you've never read, I assume? Yeah. What's your take, I guess, on Lord of the Rings? Can you hear me? Why, why do you assume I haven't read it? <laughs> uh, I haven't read it. <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, um, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen it. Honestly, I've seen it twice, um, once in the theater and then uh, once 
uh, or maybe a couple times with my wife. I don't, I'm not sure, but I was really excited to sit down and watch it again for, for, I'm not sure why, but it was one of those things when we decided to do it, I thought, Oh man, three hours. Like, I don't know when I'm going to get three hours to be able to do this, <laughs> but I said, okay, just let break it up into two days if you need to, you know, long story short, watch the whole thing in one night. Um, stayed up till one thirty in the morning watching it. And the closer it got to watching it, I was, the more excited I got. I was, I was, I'm, I'm not sure why, but I, it was this remembering the journey and just the grandiose, the, like the, the large scale that this was uh, produced on. It was actually kind of exciting, you know, since I've been doing so much more production lately, you know, I noticed that stuff more and I, I pay attention to it more. And so so I was really excited to actually see what I could notice and what I could take away from it this time, as opposed to, you know, eight years ago when I watched it last or something. And it was, it was so wonderful. It was such a, an awesome experience. Yes, it was this obviously large scale production, but it still, I still felt really connected to all the characters. Um, Peter Jackson just has this way of like, you bring one new character in and I don't know if it's the way he lights them or the way that they, he brings them into the story. But in like the first time you see somebody, you feel a new character, you feel like you, like that character has weight. Like, okay, something, that character is important. Something's going to happen with that with that character just, just by looking at him the first time he has this just way of making everybody important that's on screen. And I felt it not just because, you know, they were all, you know, kind of like larger name actors mostly, but just the way that he brought them into the story, um, was, was just fantastic. And I, the camera movements were just it was so meticulous and, and thought out. Uh, it was, it was, um, it was, it was really, I was really excited to see it and it totally held up and I can't wait to watch the next one now the, the way that they just end it <laughs> yeah. and it's like, okay, they just end it. Like, yeah, we know there's going to be two more. Don't worry. You know, it, it doesn't matter where it ends. It was, it was just very, very fulfilling. I cannot imagine the sheer amount of willpower required to shot list what 11 hours, 12 hours worth of content. Like, oh, yeah. that's absolute insanity because like you said it's all meticulous everything has been planned especially whenever he's doing some of that forced perspective stuff uh that requires a lot of testing as well it's not just hey we're going to show up on day and here's our angles it's oh we're gonna, we need to test this and make sure it's working right and in this day and age it's a lot easier to do that whereas in the late 90s he was shooting on film. And so testing not only meant like spending a day, but also meant spending a day getting the film developed and then watching it and then, you know, splicing everything together. It took way more work testing stuff back then than it does now. That's it boggles my mind. And then of course you add on to that, all the other practical stuff that they're doing. The location. I mean, just, just there's so many people in any normal movie that, just to make a film there's so many players and then but in a movie like this you have at least that many and then you got to double it at least for the people behind the scenes i mean think about wardrobe think about like like how do you travel with that much you know you can't just bring one outfit for for bilbo you know you, you have to bring 17 of them 
because if something gets stained or something gets ripped or because they're going to be doing, they're going to do a shot like, and you don't know if they're going to do it five times or 30 times and it might destroy their outfit or something like, and there's also scale doubles. There's the oh, and actual and actuals, scale doubles. Absolutely. Scale they doubles. had to make two of everything, yeah. one small and one large. And, and then, you know, the modeling and yes, all the storyboards and, and rearranging angles and like, like, even down to Elijah Wood's accent, you know, yeah. you, you have to have somebody to, to make sure that he gets the accent right. Like there's, there's so many different players in, in, in a movie in general, but in this one, like, how do you corral everyone? It It's amazing. And then on top of that, and I guess this is a good question for Joe, how in the world, I cannot understand how this got greenlit in the first place. <laughs> Absolutely. That just blows my mind. You and I were talking the other day about, I mean, this film, it it energized a country. It created industries. It revolutionized filmmaking. It revolutionized visual effects. It revolutionized uh, practical effects and prop making. Uh, like the, the, the amount of detail that went into the props is, is insane. Not only is there a wealth of writing underneath what you're seeing in the world, but they bring it to the screen in a way that had never been done before. You know, like the inside of Theoden's armor, we learned, had like the correct lining, uh, you know, where, where some of the extras wearing uh, uh, armor of the Rohirrim might not have had that. Bernard Hill's costume had the kingly gambeson underneath. And all of that, the attention to detail ends up on screen in the form of immersion and in the form of focus for us. And we don't have to do anything to just be kind of pulled into the world. Absolutely. No, I mean, from the immersion standpoint, you could definitely say it enhances a, a an actor's performance whenever they're able to play against something or feel the weight of the armor or just to feel impenetrable or vulnerable in any given moment all that is adding to a performance that someone like george lucas doesn't seem to understand and grasp the importance of mm -hmm. whenever they do nothing you know 90 percent green screen like oh just imagine there's a gagu over here and it's like oh okay i'll do that <laughs> like no you need something physically there to to play off of and to be afraid of or to attack like all of that really matters and to your point like the details are there and they add up. Even if you can't see the details, you feel the detail all the time because at, whenever you move into a close-up of Bilbo at the beginning, like suddenly his vest has all these linings and intricate patterns. And I contrast this and I won't go into any details, um, but Star Wars, you know, the, the trilogy, which I love, don't really have any details. Their costumes seem to be very, here's some fabric, throw a belt on it, let's roll. Mm -hmm. um, whereas Lord of the Rings, um, Game of Thrones, they spend so much time investing in wardrobe alone, right? And then you add on top of that all the details you don't see, like you were saying, like we never see the inside of Theoden's armor. Mm -hmm. But it's there. He feels it. Yeah, Bernard Hill felt it. Yeah. yeah. And, and and I like to think that the reason this got greenlit is because if you look at Jackson's films pre-Rings, so Heavenly Creatures, like it, he, he was a filmmaker who really liked to get in and build the models as well as blow them up. Uh, <laughs> there's there's a, a, a kind of a legendary story that gets told in the appendices of how they convinced Alan Lee, who was very, very hard to track down 
to sign on the film. They gave him a packet. They gave him heavenly creatures. And uh, all, it, all, all it was was waiting for the film to finish before he phoned them back and said, yeah, I'd love I'd love to work on it. I'd love to think that that kind of magic that Jackson has worked to his favor with New Line and with the, uh, you know, with the people that ended up producing uh, executive producing this. I, I think his passion and his his absolute drive to make the impossible possible helped sell this movie and greenlight it as well as uh, Sir Richards. That's a really good point. I think you hear this all the time in startup culture whenever you're talking to an investor. So often they say they're not investing in the idea. They're investing in the person that has the idea because mm. that's what's ultimately going to make a thing great or not. It's their drive and their passion. If someone is just doing an idea because, oh, I think it's going to be good and make money. Well, okay. I mean, maybe it better be a damn good idea. But if someone is like, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I am absolutely, here's, you know, a thousand reasons why it's going to work. Eh, I don't need it. You can save all those reasons. I believe you. Mm -hmm. And just tell me how much, you know, I need to write this check for. Yeah. And there's this spirit, like a, a friend of ours, when we were first considering moving here, told us about, you know, the Kiwis have this colonial spirit, which means nothing's impossible. Work on it. And how wonderful will it be when something impossible is sitting in front of you? And in every little aspect of this production, a new line did not believe that the Kiwis could make Gollum happen. And what did the Kiwis do? Well, they bought more equipment and they put stuff together and they put together a demo and they sent it to new line and new line went, holy crap. Okay, I guess you guys can do this. You know, they brought on Joe Letary, who is now the head of Weta Digital, uh, who's who's famous for, you know, he wrote the skin shaders for Jurassic Park. You know, he was brought on to help realize Gollum. But it's that spirit, I think, that probably happened, you know, the three years before they even started production, that if you're a producer, you know, if you're if you're an investor and you're wanting to put your money on something, seeing someone who's willing to go to those lengths because they're so damn passionate about it. I, I'm guessing it seemed like a safe bet after you get to know them for a while. Dang, that's amazing. That said, so, I mean, I read Lord of the Rings in, in high school. I was probably, I don't know, 16 or so. I struggle. Like, I like to read. Don't get me wrong. And I've, I've read some really precocious books as a kid. I read The Stand as like a 10-year-old. Um, so, like, I was very precocious. But... Tolkien drove me absolutely insane. And if there was ever a, a novel ripe to be adapted, it's either the Bible or Lord of the Rings <laughs> because there's so many details in it. To me, reading it, I would just fog over, like my eyes would glaze, and I would say, I have no idea what I'm reading because these sentences are so large and with so much detail about the the trimming in the walls. Like I have no idea what any of this means. And I'm not running to the dictionary, every single word to put together this 70 word description. I'm just kind of truck my way through it and figure it out later. But what makes for heavy, heavy reading makes for an amazing blueprint. Whenever you're talking about building out this world. And if anybody knows anything about world building, I don't know anybody better than Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Why can you tell me why he even wrote Lord of the Rings? It started uh, so he was a uh, English soldier in World War One, 
and uh, the the story, as I understand it, is he, he was he was part of an intellectuals group at uh, was it Oxford that he went to the Inklings. The, uh, I don't know if it was the Inklings back then, but he had yeah, a group of Oxford. friends, and he uh, they all went into World War uh, One. And they they had all promised that, I, that we're going to do something great. And Tolkien's great thing, he was a linguist. Uh, that that that's what his vocation was after the war. Was he he became a linguist? He was a scientist who studied language. Basically, he was like, I am going to invent a language. And uh, you know what you learn when you are going to build a language is you know there was there was a language called Esperanto, which was uh, you know invented as a common tongue that all of us. And this is a real world language that the United Nations tried to build uh, that was, you know, took all the best of English and Spanish and a bunch of languages and it completely failed and it failed because it had no culture. Language and culture depend on each other. Uh, you know, la language depends on culture to exist. So Tolkien, while he was in the trenches, apparently started working on building this culture and he didn't, you know, start with and there was hobbits. He started with in the beginning. There was Eru Iluvatar, and he, you know, very much like the Christian Bible, you know, mm -hmm. the, there were the angels who were the Ainur, and in the Silmarillion, the chapter called Akalabeth, the Ainur sing the song which describes what all of existence is going to be, and then at the end of the Akalabeth, Iluvatar snaps his finger and fingers and realizes it, and Holy it becomes crap. real in the form of reality, which they called Ea. So he started at the very beginning. Like if he's going to create a culture, I'm not just going to create a culture that started 100 years ago. This is like the very beginning of everything. And when you read the Silmarillion, there's a lot of rewards that come from reading the story as a world building exercise. And if you have the kind of the, the mind for it. Where you can where you can handle his descriptions of places and his descriptions of lineages and names and all that sort of stuff. There's so much rich reward there that comes from reading the books and reading the backstory. So, what languages but, is he wanting to create in order to build a culture? Around? Uh, the the two forms of of Elvish, I believe, they're Sindarin Elvish. So this cre he created the entire history of the elves, which if you ever want to read the Silmarillion, it reads like a history, not a novel. But it's, there's lots and lots and lots of interesting story there. So when Tolkien returned from the war, I believe he was the only one of that little group of friends of his that survived. And so he was hellbent on, I am going to invent a culture and I'm going to invent, invent a language. And he ended up inventing uh, a couple of languages out of the effort. That's crazy. That said, there's a lot of back and forth tug of war about is the Lord of the Rings an allegory or is it not? What's your take on this? I, I, I like to adhere to t like Tolkien's forward to Lord of the Rings is I cordially dislike allegory and have done so ever since I grew wise enough to detect it in all of its various manifestations. He was a wordsmith. He like, <laughs> and that's not an exact quote. I'm sure I screwed it up. Even though I don't think there's direct allegory, any artist can't help but bring some of themselves to their art. And to be clear, uh, for the non-wordsmiths out there, allegory is kind of a, a long form of a metaphor. So like an entire story that's being metaphoric, you can call an allegory. They're, they're synonymous, and uh, generally speaking. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think that, you know, the war, the war of the last alliance or the battle of Pelennor Fields was an analog for World War One or World War Two. But absolutely, when you're in the trenches, 
uh, and especially as an as an English person who's uh, observing the relationships between the officers and the kind of the class underneath the officers that serves them, that informs Frodo and Sam's relationship. Absolutely. Uh, the importance that th- it's the small people that make a difference in the world. When you're a soldier in a trench, putting your life on the line for the people thousands of miles away from you who have no idea what you're going through, that absolutely informs the work. Uh, but I believe Tolkien when he says I, it wasn't intended as allegory. That's funny. I mean, at the end of the day, even though he's creating a world, the common refrain about writing is to write what you know. Mm. And so it would be impossible for me to read this and know contextually who he was and say that World War One and World War Two didn't inform his work at all. Absolutely. Like he, I think it's super clear, even if he didn't want to, he had no choice but to draw on his own life experience. And whenever you're so up close and personal with uh, a world war that's still defining our age today, Mm. uh, there's just no way around it. And you start talking about all these cultures and individual missions, the reticence of some cultures to get involved or some nations to get involved uh, in the war in itself. uh, And we could certainly draw that up whether you're talking about the ants the hobbits themselves uh the birds whatever those birds are called the the eagles the eagles yeah (laughs) um it's there's just no no way that i could ever think that it wasn't largely informed even if it wasn't pure allegory it was it, it would be silly to say that he didn't draw from all of that in a very meaningful way absolutely yeah um well i mean it could be it it could be an allegory but i feel like that even if he meant it as that, I, I feel like he would probably argue that it isn't because it takes away from the actual story itself, right? Mm. I mean, if mm-hmm. if that's the story, that becomes the story, that it's an allegory. So all of a sudden, it's not this story. It's the story of World War One, World mm-hmm. War Two, which is not one that he wanted to tell. He He especially if he's building this world, right? If he's like creating this culture, like you said, Joe, he, you know, he doesn't want anything to take away from that. So even if he did mean it as an allegory, I don't think that he would ever let anybody think that anyway. Damn, that's a good mic drop, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> literal. Literal. I just turned it on. Um, and I, just real quick, I, I wanted to say to, you are not the first person who has expressed uh, that they have difficulty reading Tolkien. He's very prosaic. He's very, very descriptive. I speak often about the book purists, like, you know, the Tolkien book purists. There are a couple of them. There's, there are the people who have read everything voraciously and who aren't happy with the way the films, uh, with, the, with the way the story was adapted. And then there's the people who only read like The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and aren't happy. I, I dislike purism. The way Tolkien dislikes <laughs> allegory, I hate purism. I see these stories as serving two different masters. If you If you want a lot of detail and a lot of psychological creepiness, you, you can't beat the books. The description of the ring wraiths in the books, like the, the way the, the encounter at Weathertop goes down in the books is so much creepier than it is in the film. The film serves a different master. People have said, well, you know, it's about money. They didn't do Tom Bombadil because you got to appeal to the lowest common denominator. And so on. I, I would argue that in the medium of film, Tom Bombadil doesn't work. It's a poor choice. 
to include a Tom Bombadil, oh. especially when you've done a great job of focusing on what is in, in a film. We got to have a driving purpose. What are we focusing on? We're focusing on. Can Frodo. you can you uh, be specific about Tom Bombadil for those that didn't read the book? Uh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> sorry. So uh, Tom Bombadil in the books is this, uh, you don't quite know what he is. He kind of seems like a, a man or a, uh, you know, maybe a tall dwarf. He's like a forest Santa Claus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Forest Santa Claus. And I, I like to think that Tom Bombadil served, uh, the Valar in keeping the Breelands and the Shire kind of hidden from Sauron's gaze. Mm. I kind of think that's what him and he and Goldberry are doing. But of course they see a couple of the people they're meant to protect and he's singing and going down the, the road and, and saving them and protecting them like, like a father figure. And there's a lot of great stuff in the books, but Tom Bombadil sings for pages and pages and pages. And he talks about Goldberry and he describes his lands. And if you're a f- freak about the world in the books like I am that I just plow through that stuff and I can't get enough of it. But I absolutely do not fault anybody for, for not having the time for it. Yeah. You know, and there's this great idea that your wife, Heather said the other day when you were talking about uh, some of your close friends treating storyboards as scaffolding, like there was this idea that, you know, story storyboard, everything, it's going to be a great opportunity to visualize what you're making. And that way, you know, on the day of what exactly you're trying to get, how it's going to fit with the next shot, blah, blah, blah. And so Heather made this comment that I love that they call it scaffolding and not a skeleton. Because scaffolding can be moved around to fit whatever it is you're trying to build. A skeleton is rigid. It's set. You you have to build around the skeleton. And that's such a perfect idea of what I think Peter Jackson and Philippa and the whole crew, yep. whenever they wrote and adapted the novel, is they said, here's what we're trying to make. How can we make it? you know, more appropriate, serve the master of uh, film instead of, you know, novel and work. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just the very beginning I think they just knocked it out of the park. That's one of the <laughs> best introductions I've ever seen because they're introducing you to an incredibly different world than what we have today. You know, there's there's this idea of magic and darkness and elves, and they seamlessly take you through what is at stake, you know, what are the issues, and how this world has evolved to the way it is. And it's absolute perfection because it also gets you really excited about the possibilities of this world as from an action point of view, because mm-hmm. it would be really hard to start this world with just the hobbits. You're like, yawn, get me the F out of here. Yep. But whenever you start it with, Oh shit, there's like a thousand thousand people and they're all fighting each other. And there's this dude who nobody's going to handle who with every swing of his mace, he's taking out 20 mofos. Like <laughs> you understand this is not a guy you want to jack with. Yeah. I didn't want that, that whole sequence to end. It yeah. was so awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> that well whole done. thing. I was like, Oh my God, how exciting. It's incredible. And to go from that, it's like, okay, now we've established the world and a sense of excitement and the possibilities of action. Like you've served so many functions within what a seven, eight minute span, mm-hmm. like maybe even less, maybe like a five minute span. It's, it feels like half an hour because of how much they take you through in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the, the setup of who has the ring and why they have it and what it is that they have. Mm. And they tie it all seamlessly in together. 
God, that's a- and who was mm-hmm. who was the narrator for that? Was that Kate Blanchett? It was she? Like Kate Blanchett, that right? was Galadriel narrating. Galadriel, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what Gal- I thought. Galadriel in in the Legendarium would be one of the oldest people that you see in the film. She's like six thousand years old at the time of the. Uh, oh, wise Joe, is yeah. there anything you don't know? <laughs> <laughs> so she's perfect for for narrating that because you know she was probably just off camera. God, but <laughs> and also like the ability. To not only condense all the crazy, you know, descriptive text that's in there, but also, you know, into a single shot. And, you know, what Tolkien spent a page and a half describing suddenly you have in one frame. But then the ability to also expand on something that is just a shriek, right? He, he describes a shriek and that's kind of that. Mm-hmm. But in the film, suddenly the, the hobbits are on the road and that shriek becomes absolute tyranny and fear and they have not only get off the road but the realization i love that vertigo shot uh that dolly zoom whenever frodo's hearing the voice uh the the scream and you have this absolute terrifying moment that is realized visually in a way that you just couldn't do Mm -hmm. uh and just to expound on that the that effect the vertigo effect which is kind of coined after uh hitchcock's movie vertigo is that that weird kind of squishing of the image that adds all kind of anxiety and drama and what you're doing there is you're starting you know on one side let's say you know i'm i'm a foot away from someone and then i zoom i dolly backwards and if you split up you know the 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 composition the frame of your your image into a tic-tac-toe grid let's say you put someone's head in the center of that tic-tac-toe grid well as you you know, pull away from them, you have a zoom on your camera, the lens is a zoom, you're zooming in to keep them framed perfectly in that tic-tac-toe grid. And what's happening is the relationship between the camera and that subject is changing, while also the compression of the, the lens, the distance is compressing the background or decompressing it, you know, depending on which direction you're heading. And it's adding just this weird, uh, compression and decompression at the same time you feel something even though in one sense the image isn't really shifting even though it technically is it's just this great simple thing that i don't know who discovered it if hitchcock you know took someone else's idea and made it better or what but uh holy crap does that just do a great job of adding anxiety and drama into a realization moment you know my favorite part where the films eclipse the book is uh you know in in the fellowship of the ring uh when gandalf and bilbo are speaking and gandalf is trying to convince bilbo to give up the ring and bilbo's going a little golemy and in the book it's just gandalf seemed to grow a little larger which is you know kind of you just you just kind of pass it in the book jackson and lesney they turned that moment into such such an emotionally impactful underscoring of Gandalf's not only relationship to Bilbo, but his weight in the in the greater world. The room darkens. Obviously, Gandalf literally gets a little bigger in frame. And then having Ian Holm reacting to that, all that together are so much better than Gandalf seemed to grow a little bigger. Yeah. And I'm not faulting Tolkien for yeah. that Tolkien is a master world builder he is not as good a storyteller as someone who's who's doing films they serve they serve different masters and it's not 
good or bad either way. And that's an amazing thing to write such an incredible story, but not be the best at telling it. <laughs> like that's an incredible yeah. uh, it thing, you know, not everyone's good in every aspect. And yeah. obviously he developed an amazing story, but because in, in you know, in, in one thing that's better in the books than in the films is when uh, in the prancing pony, when Frodo accidentally has the ring put on his finger in the films, it's just kind of, he trips and falls in the books. He's singing a Hobbit song. And he kind of he does this really, really happy dance and lands too hard and it goes on his finger. And in there's just no time for another song in the film. But in the book, it's it underscores what Frodo is sacrificing. Frodo is sacrificing his very hobbitness. And we know hobbits are set in their ways. There's no more singing for you. There's no more cheer. There's no more eating. Your life is going to be really hard now. And, but that would not work. And that would be the wrong choice in a film. To do it that way. So let me run through some of my notes here and I'm going to ask you some questions at the end that I think are going to be really fun. You'll have to condense it because you're just a, and you really are like an encyclopedia. It's freaking <laughs> amazing. But I'll start with my favorite edit in the film. And it's this moment when Arwen is fleeing with uh, Bilbo to Rivendell. With Frodo? Give up the If you want it. Come and claim him. I love, 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 love this edit. So what's happening in that scene, if you can't really remember, is there's this kind of medium shot of Arwen as she says, if you want him. And then we punch in to come and claim him. And I love that edit for so many reasons. But let's start with what leads up to that edit. It's this long flowing chase through the woods as she's trying to get to the river and to the boundary of her of Rivendell. And doing that, all these shots are of panning. There's these all these aerial shots of the horses and the riders that are chasing her. And it's all just really smooth. And uh, you can sense the danger because they're constantly close to her. And so it's not she's. She's the fastest, and you can imagine if Aragorn had taken him, he would have been caught. Mm -hmm. um, but she's a fast rider. She's an elf. This is what they do. They're light on their feet. They're agile. All those things. And she, her horse is a badass. And so we get to this moment where she finally stops in the water in the river, and she turns at them. And uh, as we learned earlier, the... The, the ring wraiths are hesitant to get into water. That's why, you know, Buckleberry Ferry, whenever they get onto the ferry, the, the wraith is like, eh, Jack, that I'll see you on the other side. And so now we're in the river and she's giving them an opportunity to come get them. And there's this awesome, awesome moment where she just turns into, I don't even know the word for it. Like she's not a dragon, but damn it if she isn't, you know, projecting like one. And so you have that moment if you want them. And when we just like punch in as she's saying the next line and it's it's something that you don't see a lot of in movies. You never see this uh, a medium to a close up. It's hard. Like if I were to list my top 100 movies, I would probably see that in only one or two of these movies. This one included right? because it's a jump cut and you're taught not to do that. You're very much like you would cut. You would cut that up with a, a cut away and then a close up. You dice that up in some other way instead of just going from medium to close up uh, because it is jumpy and it's a little off putting. But here, whenever you combine it with all that fluidity and the drama of the moment, it heightens not only the drama, but her severity. Like suddenly you believe, oh, she's she's ready. <laughs> And it's and of course, what happens after that, like she calls on, 
I have no idea. <laughs> she calls on the river, <laughs> the gods. I don't know, but uh, she handles them like a boss, and it's all nine of them. It's not five like Aragorn took on. She takes on all all nine and just sweeps them out of the out of the river. And that's such an incredibly effective thing because you just don't see it, but it was used in the most you know efficacious way. Mm-hmm. And God, if I don't love that with all my heart. <laughs> Favorite out of the film. Um, nice. Going on, dipping into cinematography. It's interesting that he uses all this undercranking slow motion. It's like instead of if the film is shot normally in 24 frames per second, you might to get a slow mo effect, you know, shoot at 16 frames per second and then stretch that out over 24 frames. And it it does two things. It adds like a slow motion drama that you also don't lose time in because normally the way slow motion works is you stretch out one small moment. Now the, the trick with that of course is, you know, it suddenly takes much, much longer to achieve that moment. So if it's a character jumping from one building to the next and you're doing that in slow motion, well, you might have to wait, you know, 10 or 15 seconds for them to reach the other side. Whereas this undercranking method allows you to maintain a sense of action and progress while also maintaining a sense of drama and uh, importance and into that moment. And I kind of have a love hate relationship with it because for one, it looks a little hokey, but it's also really effective. So I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) It's it's smart, even if, you know, mildly off putting. And of course we we talked earlier about the, the forced perspective stuff that they do to sell the idea that these are hobbits and Gandalf is, you know, three times her size or what have you. Uh, it's, it's, Amazing because, you know, whenever it's working, it's really, really working, but it's not fluid. I wouldn't say the whole film sells you on the idea of the scale of everyone. I don't completely buy into it on every scene to scene. It's one of those things where I just willingly suspend disbelief so that, you know, if Frodo has his hand in Gandalf's hand, yeah, okay, that works. You know, I get it. I'm reminded again that he's really small, but whenever you have moments like in uh, uh, the third film, I think, or the second film when they're on the balcony together and he's clearly like on his knees, I'm like, okay, I'm not buying quite as much. But what really impresses me about this is the consistent performances that it takes for these actors to give you what they got because you have Gandalf having to pretend to be invested in a moment, even though he may be talking to the double and that double is probably not as good an actor as Elijah Wood. And so now you're having to remember and really dial in your performance on a in a way that you're, it's really very difficult. If mm-hmm. you're, if you're not an actor, you don't maybe don't appreciate how hard it is to have one consistent performance over not only the course of, you know, 15, 20 takes, but also different setups and you're waiting around and suddenly, okay, now we can go again. Like you have to remember what you're trying to accomplish in the scene. And also hope that the editor likes you a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And it's legit hard and legit scary. I mean, it's, it, it's easy to kind of, you know, dismiss, Oh, mm-hmm. actor's life so hard, but uh, the Hobbit films, they couldn't do forced perspective because you're shooting in 3D. Oh. So everybody was, so, you know, uh, Ian McKellen was on his own for a lot of that film. Wow. And think about how many years of training he has. And he kind of had a breakdown at, at the beginning of production because he was, he he's like, I'm an actor. I work with other actors. I'm sitting here looking at these lights with the other actors' faces on them. And I'm just supposed to look at the lights when the lights come on. I couldn't sell that to save my life uh wow but they had a little you know uh ian mckellen appreciation day and made him feel very loved and eventually i mean he brought it 
Yeah. You know, he, because, but that takes so much acting is second nature to you. That's amazing. Also love the first, this is the first time I've noticed that, you know, they're spherical lenses instead of like anamorphic lenses because it's cropped for a wide widescreen aspect ratio. So I've, I think I always kind of assumed that they were using these anamorphics, but they're using spherical lenses for anybody who's nerdy about those kinds of things. Also really love the use of the clunky photography during the safe times. It, this has always kind of rubbed me up until this time because at the beginning of the film, sometimes you have these really wide shots that are really close to the actors. They're handheld. It's kind of bobbing around. It's not very precise camera work. But what I realized is by doing that, whenever the hobbits are, you know, setting off fireworks or what have you, and you're kind of, you know, using these clunkier hand movements, handheld movements, well, then whenever you progress into the film these darker moments that have these much more precise shots these camera moves are suddenly very solid and it really helps sell that oh those safe times are behind us this isn't you know a happy-go-lucky we're you know stealing the farmer's carrots and mushrooms and whatnot like this is something far more uh serious that we have to take the other thing i kind of like just as an offhand thing is some of the compositions especially later in the film when we get to lothlorien with galadriel they start composing in these really close-ups where we're cropping in above the eyes cropping out the hairline um that's something that i personally really like and it helps bring you in to the emotions of the moment because the eyes are really where all the emotions are um you know the the your eyebrows your eyes your squinting your where you're looking you dial in so much more even though i think that it was maybe a tad heavy on the voice effect uh when galadriel starts debating if she's going to take the ring or not mm-hmm. i can almost it's very hard for me to make out what the heck she's saying i get the gist of it i guess which is maybe more important but i really have a hard time understanding so i think that's one of my little tiny gripes i'm like i wish they would have dialed back just to touch on that so that i can hear a little more trouble and kind of understand what what she's saying Mm -hmm. going into the story stuff i love that there's so much patient storytelling i mean i get that it's a three-hour film for the theatric and the extended is you know three and a half but even aside from that you have these great little moments that set up things way further deep into the into the series so like you have these callbacks where at the beginning, Frodo is telling Sam to imagine home. You know, they're resting, they're, they're laying down to go to sleep. Frodo's telling Sam, imagine home. And then at the very end of the movie, uh, of the series, um, Return of the Kings, you have, you have the exact inverse happening. Sam is telling Frodo to remember the Shire and remember, you know, everything that he loves. And it's just this perfect little callback. You also have a great callback where Gandalf, whenever we meet him, he, he makes that little joke to uh, Frodo. A wizard arrives precisely when he means to. And of course, in the two towers, you know, that's when Gandalf arrives at a very precise moment when the sun rises, which, of course, plays into that moment with precision. I love that in Moria, Gandalf falls. I mean, first time you're reading the book, you know, you kind of hate that moment. But I love it because it's a bitter victory. These guys won, but it came at a cost. And anything in a film that really is going to make you dig down deep and appreciate and love the characters should come with a little bit of bitterness. You know, it shouldn't just be a clean victory, but it cost you something. And that's great, great writing on Tolkien's part, for sure. And then you have uh, the the climax. I wonder if if the climax is really not just the uh, the battle between the Urukai and you know the the fellowship but i wonder if it's really the internal battles that everyone is going through is that really the climax because you have boromir who fails his test right 
but then he gives his life to redeem it. Mm-hmm. Frodo throughout the film tests everybody. <laughs> like he tests Gandalf. Mm-hmm. Like he tries to give the ring to him. He's like, no, I, I couldn't possibly. Same thing. Galadriel, Aragorn even. And it's really interesting because it's only the film really only ends when Frodo eventually accepts his task to take this on. And it really also brings an important aspect of the ring. Uh, and on a metaphoric sense is the problem with power and those who want and don't want it. That's a really interesting dilemma. And it's, it's quite ironic and, you know, difficult because it seems like the people who want power are usually the people who should not have it. (laughs) And it sucks because Nobody here wants the power except Boromir, which obviously he should be the last person to get it, and thankfully is the case. And Frodo demonstrates his his ability to handle the power by demonstrating that he, in fact, does not want this. And so this leads into my questions for Senior Joe. Um, <laughs> I have, I don't know, four, I think, four or five. The Urukai fight between Aragorn and their ringmaster the the guy the the Urukai pulls the dagger out and launches it at Aragorn mm-hmm. and i want to say i read or maybe it was in one of the commentaries that wasn't planned whenever Aragorn like slaps it away with his sword cuz that thing was headed right for him uh was that a was that a planned move or do you know anything about that it, it's funny there's was just a little back and forth on reddit the other day where the nephew of the stuntman who was who trained with Vigo on on that stunt, uh, who played Lurtz there. You know, there was the the legend that uh, Vigo on that take used his sword and knocked the knife away midair. So what what this kid said, you know, he asked his uncle, what what was the real story? He said they rehearsed it a certain way, but there was one take where that knife really was launched at at Vigo and Vigo really did knock it out of midair with his sword and they used that one in the film. Uh, So, yes, that's amazing. (laughs) Okay, um, and if you can keep this one somewhat brief, what is Gandalf and Saruman? Why don't they interfere more? Why don't they use all these incredible magic powers? If he's a badass uh, wizard, mage, what have you, why isn't he just lighting everyone on fire and calling it a day? <laughs> the the background, the Silmarillion is just the story of the the people of the earth, the people of Arda, just getting their asses handed to them over and over and over again. It's so much worse than George R.R. R. Martin. Just everybody dies and people die in the most depressing ways. And it's because the most powerful of the Valar, Melkor, uh, what are the Valar? You got to go so yeah, high yeah, level. I gotta, yeah. No one has read this book. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So think of Iluvatar as God and the Valar are the angels. And each one of the Valar was responsible for bringing a certain aspect of existence uh, into reality. So Manwe was the god of the, the wind in the air. He's he's like the god of the eagles. The other Valar battled Melkor on a couple of occasions and they they realize that when they battle power with power everybody loses yes they imprisoned melkor and threw him into the doors of night Who's and melkor? Uh, melkor is is that most powerful one he's he's like the analog of satan i gotcha so he he wanted his own song to be the dominant one he wanted to create his own 
reality and go his own way instead of, uh, you know, going with the harmony of, uh, of the other Valar. And so he, he created the Balrogs. He created all these awful creatures. But they realize when they meet power with power, the innocent people die, the elves die, the children, all, all the other children of Iluvatar suffer for it. So at the beginning of the Third Age... They, uh, the Valar realize, wow, Sauron is not gone and he is just going to come back. And if we interfere, we're just going to make things worse. So they appointed five kind of minor angels. They're called uh, Maiar. And specifically, Aloran is who we know as Gandalf. Uh, they sent them all to Middle Earth with the, the instructions that n- you cannot match Sauron's power with power. You are on Middle Earth to inspire. Uh, men, dwarves, and elves to fight for themselves and to carve a world for themselves. If you match power with power, we're going to yank you right back up and you're you're never going to go to the halls of Mandos is, is the threat. They'll, their eternal life will be over. And there were five wizards sent to Middle-earth, and of all of them, Gandalf was the only wizard to successfully accomplish his task, which is why uh, Gandalf goes back to... Uh, you know, Valinor at the very end of Return of the King. And I like to think that once they got to Valinor, Gandalf shed his earthly rament and presented himself to the hobbits in his Maiar form, which was probably pretty young and badass and powerful. <laughs> okay, so my my like 10 second version of that is ideally there's these gods and the gods have these angels and the angels kind of created uh, wizards to fulfill certain functions and they didn't allow Gandalf to use all his crazy power just because that would end up destroying far more than it helped. Yeah. And and when you read the text, I mean, Gandalf, the biggest things he does is inspire people. That The very beginning of this episode of the Pestle. That's his that's, power. That's Gandalf at his most powerful. Is inspiring people. Mm-hmm. Badass. Okay. Why does Saruman release Gollum at all? Why doesn't he kill him? Like, give me your 30 second version of this. Well, it's, it's uh, Sauron. In- Shoot. Yeah, I said Saruman. Sorry. <laughs> they have him... Uh, I don't know, in, in Baradur or somewhere. It, it's never made absolutely crystal clear, but I would imagine that it's because Saruman had never heard of a hobbit before. And so they got out of Gollum while they were torturing him, Shire Baggins, and he doesn't know kind of where to look. Sauron's power and even the power of the, the ring wraiths is very, very centered in Mordor at this time. And the reason they want to take over is so that they are powerful everywhere. The farther from Mordor they get, the kind of the less powerful they are. You know, the Ringwraiths are pretty terrible at the beginning of this movie, but they're far from Mordor, so they're not at their full power. They released Gollum because they knew that Gollum was basically just like a living wraith who wouldn't do anything to get the ring back. So they were like, we let's just let him lead us because he's so small and he's so crafty and he's so wiry. He can get into situations that that we can't. And, and, you know, the the ring wraiths are themselves blind. They're not terribly effective, especially so far from Mordor. So letting Gollum go, I think, was a a strategy of Sauron to lead the wraiths to at least the general location of the ring, if not the ring itself. Nice. Okay, so I have a theory that when Boromir cuts himself on the uh, the sword of... uh, Yeah, the sword... The sword of Elendil. Elendil, thank you. Um, That... He gets some of Sauron's blood on him, um, and I, I wonder if maybe that kind of influences his his darker leanings. Because if the 
if the uh, the ring wraith when stabbing Frodo transmit you know some darkness to him, I'd imagine being cut on the same sword that cut off Sauron's fingers uh, would would do a little you know nastiness. Might as have well. some power, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I like that. So yeah, I would say that's about the the end of my notes. And <laughs> <laughs> how condensed can can we get you? Because I imagine you got some lollywoppers. <laughs> well, nothing super huge. I mean, my my big thing is I think this was such a masterful adaptation. And I think it was so great of them to focus on Frodo and the ring. And if there's anything in the story that isn't pushing that storyline forward, it's got to go. It can be the greatest thing on earth. It's got to go. So there were all kinds of places. Um, the line... A wizard arrives precisely when he means to. That's not in the book. And that's a great line. Yeah. And I don't care how much of a book purist you are. <laughs> that's a great line. And speaking to, you know, Todd saying, uh, you know, uh, Jackson's reveals of each character in this thing are so masterful because you're drawn into their importance. And it comes from casting the right people. Absolutely. But it also comes from the writing uh, and it comes it comes from the, the performances. Uh so when I first went and saw this, I was a fan of the books and I was suspicious because, you know, filmmakers had insulted those of us who are nerds for so many years. They put out these stupid sword and sorcery movies and didn't love it and didn't take it seriously and called it genre film and it's not real acting and I wish I could get a real... When, when Gandalf said that line and that little exchange and Frodo hugs him, I was like, I'm in. <laughs> thank you for taking this seriously and thank you for loving it as much as I do. You know, that, that line's not in the book, but I absolutely loved it. And I love the way it was shot. I love that close up. I love that the rim, the brim of Gandalf's hat comes up to reveal McKellen's eyes and McKellen's performance there. Just absolutely perfect. Uh, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit here. One thing I noticed, you, you know how I said I, I was watching this with a more of an analytical filmmaking eye is in this film, you never see the Tower of Orthanc. Which you never tower see is the that? full. So that? that's uh, so when um, Gandalf goes to talk to Saruman, to, you know, he's the head of my order, and they're in that tower, and Gandalf slowly realizes, oh my God, he's, we've lost him. He's, he's gone to the enemy. But you don't know the extent in this film, you don't know the extent to which Saruman has betrayed everyone. And it's it's funny because you never see that Tower of Orthanc in the whole Fellowship of the Ring. You see parts of it. You see the base, you know, when they first meet each other, when Gandalf's imprisoned, you see the very top of the spire. It's not until the two towers that you see that wide establishing mm -hmm. shot of the entire tower and what he's done to the surrounding countryside, which I think really, really underscores the the level of his betrayal. Uh, you know, and, and I thought that was a really cool kind of yeah. visual way to keep his machinations, you know, kind of we don't know how deep this goes. Yeah, it allows room to grow as the films progress. That's what holds back Actually, that was the first time I noticed that the, watching it this time. For whatever reason, the, the first few times, I, I think I was just trying to absorb. There was a lot to take in and I just didn't notice it. But this time I noticed, oh, wait a minute. That's the that's the tower. Like, that's the tower. And he actually transforms that whole area into what becomes, you know, part of the two towers at the end. Like, it, I, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. OK, I get it. I get it now. That's yeah. Badass. Anyway. Yeah. 
I, I was also going to say I, I really appreciated kind of the economical storytelling. Like there's the idea that uh, great art is specific and bad art is general. And I think, you know, while in the books, descriptions of lands and lineages and names and stuff are, are very specific in a film. What do you do? You really want the camera to pan around to this valley and then that river in the medium of film that is not specific. It's general. And I love that in these films, they only pull back as far as they need to because we really need to stay tethered to the characters in the medium of film. I don't care what your budget is. Little things that uh, little things about the film that they told very economically was rather than describing it's the occasion of Bilbo's 111st birthday. That montage at the beginning, we're getting we're getting a little bit of voiceover telling us what hobbits are, but we're also being shown what hobbits are, and we're being shown that these hobbits are gleefully putting up a sign that says "Happy Birthday, Bilbo Baggins." You know, we get little hints about, you know, you haven't aged a day. We don't need a long description that it's been sixty years since the events of The Hobbit, and that Bilbo's barely aged at all. So I love that they 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 touch on the most important parts of the text only where they need to. And for the rest of it, it's moving the story along mm. in the movie. It's not, you know, in the book, Gandalf's gone for 17 years to find out that, Oh, the, Oh my God, this is the one ring. We don't, we just don't need it in the medium of the book. It's great in the medium of the film. Again, it's a wrong choice yeah. uh, to have these, these huge swings of time. So I really, really appreciated the economical uh, storytelling. There were a lot of fans. I don't know if if, if you were an, a big internet guy when these films were in production. There was a lot of people on forums that apparently got listened to who are huge fans of Tolkien, and there's pros that Tolkien is so great at. I, I love that Boyens, Walsh, and Jackson took a lot of Tolkien's best pros, and they might take it out of a scene where it wouldn't work, but they would put it back into a scene where it would work. Like at the end of uh, Return of the King, where Gandalf and Pippin are discussing death and Gandalf talks about the gray rain curtains of the world moving aside that in the book that those words are a dream that Frodo has, I think in Bombadil's house. And it's, it kind of foretells his death. Uh, but the words themselves are so pretty. The words that Tolkien wrote about uh, what Arwen is sacrificing by staying in Middle Earth. She's she's not only sacrificing, you know, the fact that she lives forever, she's going to die now. Her eternal spirit is never going to go to Valinor. She is just going to wither and die and never exist again. And the way Tolkien describes that is uh, told kind of as like a flash forward uh, when, when Elrond is, uh, you know, trying to convince Arwen how important it is that she gets on the ship. So... This happens all over the place. I can't even list all the places where Tolkien's amazing prose is used to, I think, its best effect in the drama of the moment in the film. I'm blown away by what uh, an amazing job they did of that. And it makes me as a Tolkien freak feel like they honored the text and they yeah. loved it as much as I did. And as a movie fan, they didn't put me to sleep. You That's know, they, awesome. they made the right choices for, for the screen. So. Yeah. And for me, this is my favorite of the three. Personally, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for seeing friends all together instead of broken up. And so as the films right. progress, like everyone goes their separate ways to do their own things to whatever. It's great. Yeah. But like, I just love seeing everybody together alive and doing their thing. Yeah. As a group. <laughs> Joe, could you 
could you speak a little bit to some of the the effects that whether Weta had a hand in a specific one or not, you know, doesn't really matter if they did. Great. I want to hear more about that, but just, you know, in general, like how, how do you, so they did some in-camera stuff like Wes, you mentioned earlier, the whole, the whole force perspective thing with the Hobbit sitting next to Gandalf. And at the beginning, the Hobbit was sitting farther back and, and Gandalf was sitting closer to the camera and they can do stuff like that. Or like, you know, um, like I, I sent you a, a link, Wes, uh, just a minute ago that we'll put in the show notes, but of Elijah Wood in front of a blue screen doing this, like when at the beginning where he's, he's walking in and, and Gandalf is behind him and saying, and and, uh, basically saying that, you know, this is your ring now or whatever. And so Gandalf is in the shot behind him, real looming large and he's in front, but, but the way they shot it is in a blue screen and they overlap. They, they show you in this video how they, they, they overlap the actual footage of, of in the house, in Bilbo's house, um, so that they could see if it matches up and, and the camera movement and everything. Um, so, so they did a lot of stuff like in camera, but like, if you could speak Joe to how do you even start dealing with the, the volume of special effects in a movie like this and keeping everything looking similar throughout the film? Because obviously it wasn't just, just Weta that worked on this film. There were other, other, you know, houses that, that came in and did it. And so you've got maybe, you know, 50 people over here working on this scene and you've got 50 people over here at Weta working on this scene. And how, how do they match up? Like, how do they, you know, and this isn't right, you know, done today. This was done, you know, however long, how long ago, you know, 15 years, 20 years ago, um, where they didn't have the the connection that they do now. So the ability to like just send something over to this other studio. Oh, does it look like this? Okay, great. And, and find that out in five minutes. Like, how does that come together? Like Wes said, there was a lot of preparation for this film. I, th- I think even before they knew they were going to be working on Lord of the Rings, I-, I know Jackson just as a filmmaker was constantly experimenting with things. But you you see them working on the forced perspective stuff so you know the scene at the beginning where bilbo and gandalf are talking and bilbo's pouring tea for gandalf it's easy to do a locked off where you just have you have the camera on a tripod and it's not moving and you have one actor closer one actor far away jackson loves moving cameras and he loves motivated motion and he wanted to be able to move the camera so they had a motion control rig where not only does the camera move but the set moves too so ian holm is on a platform and as the camera is moving the platform is moving farther away from the camera and there's enough dressing on the table that you don't see the split so he's literally pouring the tea in a glass that's kind of moving farther away and then mckellen picks up the tea that's that's close to him and they're really carefully keeping their eye lines you know the this isn't easy for an actor to do either but they tested the hell out of that if you watch the uh, dvd appendices there's all kinds of hilarious little screen tests of them with tables and them with uh, you know motion gear and uh so i think just that amount of preparation uh there's also the fact that christian rivers and peter jackson storyboarded the entire trilogy from the beginning to the end and knew all the shots that were going to have i mean their shot list they were shot listing years before you know they turned a camera on so i think they knew uh, they had discussed at length all the shots that they wanted to get so they could go into it fairly well prepared 
as far as other students, uh, Weta, Weta Workshop and Weta Digital did the lion's share of the effects on these. You know, Digital Domain did uh, uh, did the river at the Ford of Bruinen where the, the horses come, you know, Arwen calls the horses, which just for the book purists, I know it's Elrond and Gandalf who do it in the book, uh, but let's, let's let, Ar- let Arwen have her moment. There are a lot of visual effects milestones going on here, not the least of which is being told you're going to be doing hundreds of shots and then ending up delivering thousands. But one thing that blew my mind about this last watch is there's a lot of them that are really long effects shots. And one, one of the keys to effects shots is you want them to be short. Uh, but there, you know, that that shot where we kind of follow the uh, the moth up to the top of Orthanc and go down underground. I think at the time, I can't remember if it was that shot or another shot was at the time the longest visual effects shot in in history. And they're, the good thing is that it's story motivated. It they didn't just do it to do it. That immerses you. That gives you so much believability that wow, there's all this stuff going up hundreds and hundreds of feet in the air at the top of this tower and there's also thousands of orcs underneath and i know because it's one shot that went from the top of this tower all the way down and then lands finally on sauron who's got his back to the camera it's like he's conducting an orchestra with his with his giant uh staff and i think in every way care was given uh, on on the visual effects here that it was that it was motivated and that it served the story it was more we have a story goal that we need to accomplish how do we accomplish that in visual effects rather than having the visual effects you know drive the need for the effect um always a good starting place absolutely yeah yeah, yeah any other thoughts another thing i wanted to mention is uh you know we you've discussed there have been a few uh pestles about uh where where palette choice is is really important and I really liked that all the different locations here had a really, really specific palette. You know, the, the really saturated greens of uh, of the Shire. Wes and I criticize our poor color grading skills, but I know when I want to warm up shadows, you end up with kind of yellow grass. <laughs> uh, and you know, they they embrace that. It gives it gives the a warm, homey feeling. You know, out in out in the wild, it's it's more desaturated and white. But I've really noticed this time that whenever you're around elves, they did this kind of halo effect. Around the, the shadows were still sharp, but the highlights had halos around them. And it really gave this ethereal. They do a ton of three-point lighting where you have a key light, a fill light that's kind of both in front of you. But more specifically, they do a ton of rim lighting so that mm. anytime you're looking at you know some of these good guys, I'm sure if I were to like go through this whole series, I bet they consistently give the good guys a nice ring light that's kind of lighting their hair this golden color and it mm-hmm. it adds this halo effect that you're talking about and then you know the ring wraiths and some of these darker characters they don't get those benefits they and that adds a level of contrast between good and evil that you want to draw on a film that's about good and evil <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and those really strong palette choices i think really serve to center you in in the set that you're in uh, I also the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, I always love the director of photography uh, for these films is the the late Andrew Lesney who's just just magical. I love that there is one tiny insignificant shot that may, it's maybe on screen for like a second where they're going through Caradras and Frodo drops the ring and it's lying in the snow. And I guess Lesney or, or somebody had this idea that in the frame we want the ring huge in the foreground. 
and Frodo and, uh, you know, Gandalf really, really small in the background to underscore that while the ring is away from him and we're at risk of losing it. And then, you know, Boromir picks it up and says, you know, it's strange that all this is happening for such so tiny a thing. That shot with camera lenses, it's kind of impossible to have the ring in focus as well as the, uh, the the background as much in focus as they wanted. So rather than use a diopter, which uh, which, you know, you've discussed uh, discussed before where you have kind of two different lenses that are blending together, it can look kind of weird. They had workshop build this giant ring. And so if you look at it, you can Google it. And they did that so that the ring was in perfect focus in the foreground and they could really sell that tiny moment of risk that the yeah. the ring is not with Frodo and we can't ever let this happen again. That has to be Frodo's I'm really burden. glad you brought that up. That's, that's my favorite shot. Yeah, that's a badass shot because it's so beautiful and gold contrasting against this white snow, mm-hmm. but it's huge. It's taking so much of the frame up and in the back, you can still see in focus, you know, who you're talking about. The people mm-hmm. that are like, oh my God, is this Boromir's moment? And to take that effort and to have the foresight of this moment is going to happen, you know, two years from now, we're going to shoot this shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to, you know, build this whatever foot wide ring or whatever this <laughs> yeah. thing is. Yeah. I, it's like a foot. It's literally a foot oh, wide crap. that they built. Yep. And I don't know where do they use that? Is that the only shot? Is it I think like that most, was, uh, most I, I, beauty shots of the ring, you know? Yeah. I wonder if the, I wonder if it did get reused, but I just love the idea that we're going to we're going to build this ring because I want that frame. That is the frame that's going to sell this. That's, that's awesome. So that's awesome. what do you how do you rate this, Todd? <laughs> I'm going to rate it a nine. I I want to give it a ten. There there were some moments I was I was taken out. That not all this. Not all the CG was was needed at some points, I felt like. But for the most part. I mean, it, the whole thing had to be built around a lot of it, you know, just because of the setting and, and the story itself. So, so, but I'm I, on a, on a really, on a bad day, I would give it a nine, maybe, maybe eight and a half, but today I'm going to give it a nine, solid nine, maybe even a nine and a half, but nine, nine, I think nine. if I was objective, I would also give it a nine, but I am such <laughs> You're such, such a nerd. Yeah, I really am. Like, I can't help but give this a 10. The rewatchability, I think, because I've probably it re- seen yes. it 15, Which is crazy. Times. You yeah. know what? That's a really good point. Uh, so high. I, I might have to go up to a nine and a half because <laughs> nice. for a three-hour movie to be rewatchable. Yeah. Right. Yep. That's something. Like, that's saying a lot, That really man. is. Joe, yeah. what do you think? Five, six? Yeah. <laughs> I tell people that I am a Tolkien sycophant. Uh, uh, a fanatic and I am also a Jackson sycophant and fanatic I, I, I cannot be objective about this film they can do no wrong and I recognize that failing in myself that I, I would be the worst <laughs> critics of these films because I just I love them so dearly and I love the faults too I love that Galadriel's too over the top and they completely painted over Kate Blanchett's amazing performance <laughs> I can't help but love it, and, yeah. I, and I recognize that I can't help but love it. So, yeah, it's it's got to be a 10 for me. Badass. Uh, Reco for the week, Todd? So I'm going to recommend Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. You know, I'm, I'm not a massive, huge, crazy Harry Potter, you know, 
fan, but that movie really, you know, it, movies that bring your imagination to life and introduce you to like this, this new world that, you know, just, just like this, uh, the, um, fellowship of the ring does it's, it's this whole new universe that they're introducing you to. And so you're learning how to fall in how, what that is and how to fall in love with it and the characters and, and, and every, the situations that these characters find themselves in. I, I feel like the Sorcerer's Stone does that in, in such a magical way where, you know, my, my kids can watch it and, and, you know, be inspired by it and stuff. So yeah, yeah. It definitely has that same kind of relationship uh, with me on that level. That's awesome. What do you got, Joe? <laughs> uh, I am going to recommend The Atlas of Middle Earth by Karen Wynne Fonstad. So this is this is a great companion. If you're reading The Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, uh, you know, I've, I've said before, this is a world that Tolkien is building and he spends a lot of time talking about places. And I've found it really helps me to have a map. So I know what the hell he's talking about. Uh, Karen Fonstad did a great job of uh, cartography just taken from Tolkien's descriptions because Tolkien mapped a lot of stuff out, but a lot of stuff is just described. So she went those long passages in the Silmarillion and cartographied it. Is that (laughs) is that a uh, is that a word? And I and I just wanted to quickly thank my wife, Heather, who is a huge Tolkien fan. And I could not be here in Wellington working at Weta Digital without her. That was a Christmas gift from Heather a couple of years ago. And it's such a great gift. So thank you, Heather. You're welcome, love. <laughs> we love you, Heather. <laughs> Absolutely. I am going to recommend another adaptation uh, called Stardust. It was a Neil Gaiman, I don't know if it's a book or graphic novel, Good. but it's it's fantasy. It's fun. It's lighthearted. It's Neil Gaiman. Like there's nothing to not love about this. And if you haven't seen it, you will love Robert De Niro's performance in this. It's just (laughs) pure magic. And so big recommendation, Stardust. Good one. So stay tuned next week. I will be back in Austin. I'll be leaving the land of uh, the Kiwis and New Zealand. (laughs) I got to go see Hobbiton. It was absolutely everything you wish. And all the details really shine through. It was just absolutely beautiful and so i'll be leaving here and going back to austin where we will be doing a very long engagement this is a request from izzy who's been badass man on the ground in the comments section so hat tip to izzy don't forget to subscribe and review us on itunes also leave us a note saying what you'd like us to talk about the kind of things you find interesting uh, if you want to comment on this episode you can do so at the pestlepodcast.com slash the fellowship of the ring and i don't think we'll have time to quite get into it but todd has a quote of the day this one's by christopher lee there's a dark side in all of us and for us bad people the bad side dominates I think there's a great sadness in villains, and I have tried to put that across. We cannot stop ourselves doing what we are doing. Mm. I love that. That's that's interesting. It is. I mean, Christopher Lee, he's been Dracula. He's been Saruman. He's been so yeah. many iconic evil characters. And, you know, it, I really appreciate any actor who says, I just want to be the good guy. Instead, he says, I'm going to be the bad guy, and I'm going to empathize with him. Mm-hmm. There's a great sadness in villains. That's... Yeah. That's somebody who's who's really actually played a villain, his who's been villainous yeah. in his portrayal of a villain. That's awesome. you can tell, and who's empathized with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
Beautiful. Another another war veteran, so yeah, he understands it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Any, all right. Well, thank you guys for everybody who stayed with us this whole time, which is about the length of uh, that it would take you to watch the movie. Maybe. Uh, thank you for ha- staying with us, Joe. It's been so amazing having you on the last few few episodes. Thank you for your time, Heather. Thank you for for putting up Wes and taking care of him and dealing with with him. <laughs> uh, Wes, I can't wait for you to come back. It's not the same without you in the, in the room. Same. Uh, but I'm I'm really happy you've had that experience. It's been amazing. As Wes said, make sure to review us on iTunes and leave comments. Uh, we really want those. We want to know what you think of us and and what and the job we're doing. Join us next week. We're doing a very long engagement. Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. I'm Joe. Fly, you fools! Fly, you fools!